This message first aired on the radio on July 26, 2004. We're continuing together today in the second chapter of Philippians, and I trust that this epistle is a blessing to you as it is to me, and we have some things in Philippians. Uh, due to the, con- uh, the uh, condition of the church and the timing of this church, we have some things in the epistle of the Philippians which are deep things, that are detailed things, that require knowledge, deep knowledge, and, and uh, uh, detailed knowledge to understand. And we've covered now in the second chapter, we've covered the mind that, is in, that was in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that the way of the cross is the way to glory. And now in the remainder of the, of the section of the second chapter, the apostle is going to make application of this, uh, of the Lord's mind, which he's commending them to have, and uh, make application of it and call them to the Christian life, which is modeled after our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, though modeled by him, the, the life is emulated by the Apostle Paul and the prototypical servant of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've said many times here on BibleStudy.net, and we continue, continue to say, is the Apostle Paul. And so we can rightly ask ourselves not what would Jesus do and then give ourselves over to vain speculations, which we're cautioned against in the Scripture, but rather ask ourselves what was it that Paul did do, and for that we can look in the Scripture and we don't have to imagine it, and we see now that he lived the kind of life uh, with the mind of Christ. And and in the 12th uh, verse, uh, he begins his exhortation to the Philippian believers with this, with this statement, uh, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as my presence uh, only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I say that not only because of the condition of the Philippian church, which was forward to listen to the apostle, and therefore, because it was a spiritually-minded church, and it was demonstrably spiritually-minded, by number one, they listened to the Apostle Paul. Number two, they immediately saw the way of the cross and embraced that way and stood uh, with the Apostle Paul and didn't cower out or chicken out, as we say, in the Christian faith by avoiding the way of the cross and the doctrines that lead thereunto, but they embraced them and they continued to have fellowship with the one who suffered as the servant of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul. So, so they were not in the unspiritual condition of the Corinthian church whereby the apostle or the Galatian church whereby the apostle could not deliver to them due to their carnality and in the case of the Galatian churches their abandoning of the way of grace through faith that he that they were not disqualified from being delivered uh, deeper truth now the timing also played in plays into this this is a prison epistle and therefore the apostle has liberty the Lord has given him liberty to disclose the great secret or mystery of the church which is his body and associated uh, mysteries. He is forward to uh, teach them this, and he is free to teach them this. And so, therefore, uh, the apostle, uh, or the Philippian epistle, is benefactor both of timing and of the spirituality of uh, the Philippians, so the content of the Philippian epistle is thereby graded. Now, here he says, uh, in my presence only, you've always obeyed, but now in my absence also obey. And here's the way to obey, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this passage, uh, this section here, work out your own salvation, this this exhortation, is is very poorly understood because 
I think that the framework of the scriptures are poorly understood, and those who don't see a distinction or don't have detailed knowledge and don't see a distinction between the saving of the Christian life or soul, because the word the word soul here is the word for life, or the word the word soul in Scripture is the word for life. It is the word suke. Uh, we have uh, a distinction in, in they're not unrelated, but we have distinguished in the Christian life the salvation of the spirit and the salvation of the soul. Indeed, we also have distinguished in the Christian life the salvation of the body. Now, no one today would claim that they have a saved, but no right-thinking Christian today could claim that they had already a body saved. Now, remember, when we talk about saved, we talk about saved from what? Well, our bodies are uh, subject to two things that are unhappy results. Number one, they're mortal. They can be, we can be killed. We can die. In fact, dying, we do die. And dying is not only an event at the end of our life, but it's a process that takes place throughout our life. And so we have mortality to contend with, and there it is. And we, uh, that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, we say that this mortal must put on immortality, and this corruptible must put on ir- ir- incorruption. Therefore, we have the, the dual phrases of victory, or the dual songs of victory, where, O grave, is, uh, where, O death, is now thy sting, where, O grave, is now thy victory. Each one has its own, uh, its own conquest. There is a conquest over death and the grave. Now, that is over mortality and corruption. And so we know that this is yet a future thing. Our bodies are destined, certainly, for immortality as a believer in Jesus Christ. Our uh, bodies are destined certainly for incorruption, as will be raised incorruptible. But what is at issue is whether or not we will save our Christian lives, or whether we will experience the salvation of our Christian lives. Uh, so again, now we know that our bodies are going to be saved from mortality and uh, and and from corruption. But what will our lives be saved from? Well, the Scripture seems to teach us very plainly that we want to save our Christian lives from being wasted, from being wasted. So we're, we're constantly exhorted not to waste our Christian lives, redeem the time because the days are evil. That has to do with buying up the opportunities that life affords. Love not the world, neither the things in the world, because they're all passing away. Your life does not consist of the abundance of the things that you have. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or his own life? And today we have much confusion about these matters because we fail to distinguish the things that differ. As the apostle prayed, the Philippians would. He, he Before he even teaches them this, he said, he said to them, that you may, verse 10 of chapter 1, that you may approve the things that are excellent. And remember, we talked about that being distinguishing the things that differ. When we cut the Word of God straight, we distinguish the things that differ. One of the things that Christians don't do often today is distinguish soul and spirit. I hear the terms being used interchangeably. Uh, souls were saved today. Uh, spirit, uh, people talking about the soul as if it is the spirit. Now the the scripture says that that the 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 body without the spirit is dead. That's what ends a life. So the soul or the life of the Christian is not about the things that he has, nor is it the spirit. But in fact, 
uh, we find that the Word of God is the only thing that is able, that is sharp. We find this in the book of Hebrews, for example. Uh, We find in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is alive, and it is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Well, if if these two things can be divided asunder then and only by the word of god uh, then 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 these need to be distinguished by the word of god soul and spirit we say well, what's my life well you the scripture tells you what your life isn't and it's not the things that you have and so it's the opportunities that you have and of course we're exhorted now to work out our our salvation with fear and trembling. It's as if God hands us our salvation. We have eternal life. Now we're to work it out. This corresponds, by the way, working out our salvation is uh, a matter of by grace through faith finding the works that God has created in Jesus Christ for us uh, that we should walk in them. Here it says, For we are his workmanship, in Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe you remember this. It says, By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it's the gift of God. Verse 8, verse 9, Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained, or before prepared, that we should walk in them. And how do we walk in them? Well, in the, in the way that you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, we, we read in Colossians 2.6, So walk ye in him. So it's the principle of grace through faith, which the apostle continues to contend with the believers that they would continue on that same principle. Now by grace through faith, the Philippians are exhorted to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Now we have a common salvation by grace through faith, that's talked about in Jude, and that we would earnestly strive with reference to the faith. Uh, for our, uh, 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 that's what uh, is in that epistle, in in and how to do that. Here in this epistle is also the exhortation: work out your own salvation. You remember the apostle talked about that events of his imprisonment has rather worked out to uh, the good of the gospel and that they'll continue, according to the supply of the Spirit and the prayers of the Philippians, to work out to his salvation. So he realizes he has his own salvation, and that is the salvation of his Christian life, to which he must pay attention. And so do we. We don't have a salvation to work out that hasn't been given to us, but we do have to work it out. Now, here it says, work this out with fear and trembling. And so now he also points out, well, you're not alone, for it is God which works in you both to do and to will, of, to will and to do of his good pleasure. He says you're not without resource, you're not without capability. God has given us a new vehicle, he's given us a new nature, he's given us the knowledge of his will, he's given us the power of, uh, of he's given us dunamis or power, which we lack, but he'll give it to us, uh, also on the principle of grace through faith quickening our spirit by the working of his Holy Spirit. So here we know that God also does the inward work. And so this now has to do with what we're to be occupied with, our own salvation. Now he says, verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputing. Verse 15, very important. I wanna, I'm want to. i recapitulating these verses from our last time together because they're so critical to understanding. And whenever we come across these, uh, we're going to, we're going to, pause and talk about this because it's a much needed teaching today 
Verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now here's verse 15. Here he says that you might be blameless. Now it is possible to be blameless. It's not possible to be innocent. We're all sinners, but we can be blameless. That is to say, we can clear ourselves. At the end of the apostle's life, he tells the hearers, Uh, of his words, I am blameless now from the blood of all men because I have not failed to give you the full counsel of God. He became blameless by uh, not compensating uh, or not suffering the punishment of what he was to be blamed for, which was persecuting the church of God, but he became blameless because he told them the truth. And just as an elder in a local church must be blameless, we all want to be blameless. And that means that we clear ourselves of that for which we might be blamed. And then it says harmless. Blameless and harmless. That is, we are blameless. Uh, Blame doesn't stick to us. Accusations can't stick to us because we uh, can deliver, we have delivered ourselves from them and shown ourselves to be honest in light of them. And now harmless, that is not doing any damage to anyone, but rather uh, bringing the truth. So here he says, that you would be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. This, of course, has to do with maturity. When we see the sons of God here, that phrase used as opposed, for example, or as compared to children of God, this has to do with being mature, without rebuke. Well, who's the rebuke from whom? Well, without the rebuke of the Lord. Without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, uh, by the way, here it says a crooked and a perverse nation or generation, and that's God's planting is in the midst of his enemies. Uh, God's planting is in the midst of those uh, who hate him. Uh, God sees to it that, uh, he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And God plants his church in the midst of uh, those who are against him. As John the Apostle wrote, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the wicked one. And so God here lights up his light, and and now we are the light of the world. We are light to the world if we will pursue what God tells us to pursue, and we'll be the light of the world, and we'll be light to the world if we give ourselves to what the apostle gave himself to, which was the working out of his own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me walk down that pathway a little bit with you and uh, reflect this into a proper understanding of the book of Hebrews, or from the book of Hebrews, and then when when we come to the study of that uh, epistle, which I hope will be soon, we'll see that many of the passages that seem enigmatic to us uh, in the book of Hebrews are understood well when we understand that our purpose is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and and to see to it that our Christian lives are saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the day of his judgment seat, by the way. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6 for just a minute, and we'll read it. We're beginning with verse 4. Here is a much maligned passage of Scripture, often used by those who believe that that the salvation of your spirit and that eternal life can be lost. Uh, even though it's a, the gift of God, they, they, there are those who will take this passage and say that your eternal life can be lost. 
Then on the other side, also in error, are those that say this passage will show you that if you don't do this or that, or if you act this or that way, you're not really saved. And in fact, it doesn't mean either one of those things. It tells us exactly what it means right in the passage. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened or lit up, right? Once enlightened or lit up and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers or companions of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify uh, to themselves the Son of God afresh, or that they crucify, re-crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it and brings forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receives blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and nigh unto cursing. Notice it doesn't say cursed. But nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that what? Accompany salvation though we thus speak. Now we're going to come back after this brief break and we're going to drill down a little bit on this passage and one in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to continue to talk about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're listening to BibleStudy.net and I'm John Malone. Well, when we look at this passage in Hebrews 6, and by the way, we have ventured to Hebrews 6 from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We, we see here a great warning in the book of Hebrews 6 that, it, 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 that tells us it's impossible for those who were first once enlightened, secondly, have tasted of the heavenly gift, thirdly, were made partakers or companions of the Holy Ghost, fourthly, have tasted the good word of God, and fifthly, the power of the age to come. Now, those five things, of course, the number of grace, all these things given in grace, and the power of the age to come. Uh, finally, if they shall fall away. Now, here we have to do with the falling away. Or, and then, literally, it says, if they have done this and then fall away, it's impossible to what? Renew them again unto repentance. Well, this has to do with you can't you cannot bring these back when when they've taken this point of view and they've abandoned all of these things. Uh, they have now placed themselves, though saved, uh, though having eternal life, they have now placed themselves without uh, any remedy because they have rejected the way of grace through faith. In fact, they have rejected the way in their own lives, uh, the blood-bought way. They have rejected the way uh, of uh, grace through faith and the work and the power of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having done that, uh, you can't renew them again to a change of mind because why? Seeing they crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. This is exactly what people do when they abandon the way of grace through faith and take up the way of law. Now they are in the law. And the law, of course, just pictured the future of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the law has a picture of the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is not about the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It portends his finished work. It, brought, it features his finished work. The law existed in order to bring about the one who will finish the work. But if you set yourself back there and begin now to look for the Lord 
to finish his work, you have crucified the Son of God of flesh. You anticipate now, uh, instead of enjoying the finished work of Christ, you are anticipating the finished work of Christ. And so you crucify him afresh, as it were. You say, well, his work is meaningless. His work on the cross meant nothing. And so to, to, so that is the same as if say, uh, crucifying him again, placing yourself with those who say he needs to be crucified. And that's what it says in Hebrews 6.6. 6. Now it says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes off upon it, and brings forth herb or herbs, meat, uh, for them by whom it is dressed, receives a blessing from God. So here's a comparison of the believer to earth. Of course, we've seen that before. We see the comparison of the believers to earth in Matthew, the 13th chapter, the parable of the sower, where we have different kinds of uh, grounds. The, this is the one sown uh, by the wayside. This is the one sown on stony ground. This is the one sown among thorns. Uh, this is the one sown on good ground. So now here's the same comparison for the earth which drinks in the rain that comes off upon it. Now what's the rain that comes off upon the earth? If the believer is the ground, the, the rain that comes off upon it is the word of God. And of course the word of God, the water of God, speaks of the grace of God that comes by faith. Grace comes through faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Verse 7, the earth which drinks in the water that comes off upon it this is the washing of the water of the word, as we learn from the book of Ephesians. The one who benefits from that brings forth herbs, becomes fruitful. Just like the fourth characteristic in the parable of the sower, the one, that, the, the one who was sown on good ground, brings forth fruit, or in this case herbs, by the one, uh, for, for the one by whom it is dressed. Brings forth fruit, this has to do with fruit bearing, the herb that, that uh, uh, takes upon uh, the the rain and and makes use of the rain makes use of the grace of God through faith makes use of the washing of the water of the word uh, the, the one who who does that is fruitful to the one who is dressing it of course I am the vine I'm the true vine the true one the Lord Jesus said my father is the husbandman or the vine dresser so brings forth fruit unto God verse 7 but the but that that is that same earth which bears thorns and briars, of course this has to do with, with fruit bearing. The one that brings forth good fruit uh, receives a blessing. The one that brings forth thorns and briars, now what brings forth thorns and briars? Well the earth does naturally. The, the, the sin-cursed earth does that. This now speaks of that which is natural and that which is not spiritual. This has to do with the being worldly and carnal and not being spiritual. This has to do with not drinking in the rain that comes off upon it. That which bears thorns and briars, that ground which bears thorns and briars, is, the word here, rejected. Rejected. Well, what does it mean to be rejected? It means to be disapproved. In fact, that is the word actually translated rejected here is adokimos, uh, dokimos is the word for approved. A dokimos is the word for not approved. Now you don't like my Greek, uh, the way I speak Greek. That's okay. Listen, I speak English. Uh, that's what I speak. So here now it says uh, that which is is nigh unto cursing. Nigh unto cursing. Very interesting that we have the combination. It says, nigh unto a curse. They crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. This has to do with the believer who abandons the way of grace through faith. You said, who would do that? Very many did that. Very many did that early on in the church history. Very many did. Almost all of them in Galatian churches did it. 
Are you kidding me? So many are doing that today, it's unfathomable. Uh, they, they, they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh. And of course, he, when he was on the cross, he was made a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So here it says, this one, the, those who reject his work are nigh unto cursing. Now that doesn't say that they're cursed, and they're not cursed. These are children of God, and they can't be cursed. We find out from uh, the Old Testament, from uh, the prophecies of Balaam, that when God elects a people, they cannot be cursed. Now, God has elected different people. God has elect, he has elected the nation of Israel, the Israel of God. He has elected the church, which is his body, and he has elected Gentiles. And it is impossible for any of those to be cursed. But here it doesn't say they're cursed. It says, nigh unto cursing. These are not the cursing children. These are nigh unto cursing. And then it says, whose end is to be burned. Well, of course, thorns and, and, and uh, briars, that's what you do with them. You pile up them in a stack and you burn them. You say, well, how can the end be burning? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, friends. The judgment seat of Christ is likened unto a fire. And all those works that are unworthy, that were not the works appointed for us to walk in, but that we walked in anyway, uh, the ones that are not part of the ones that God intended for us to exercise in our Christian life, these works will be burned. And that's the end, by the way, of the one who crucifies to himself, or who crucifies again the Son of God of flesh, by abandoning the principle of grace through faith. It is no small thing. Now we have also in Hebrews 10 a very similar warning. A very similar warning in the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Of course, all the warnings in Hebrews are for believers. The, 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 the unbeliever is not hereby warned. It, th these are all warnings to believers. And so now we'll look briefly at Hebrews chapter 10. And as I said, God giving us grace. We'll look through the entire book of Hebrews together here on BibleStudy.net. Now in Hebrews 10, we read in the 26th verse as follows. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Now, here, by the way, is talking about willful sin. It's talking about willful sin. You say, well, what's the willful sin? It says, if we sin willfully. Well, let me say what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that all of your sins are accidents, as so many say and make excuses. Well, I didn't mean to do that, or it was just an accident. My sins are mistakes, and your sins are willful. Nothing like that. Let me assure you that when you sin, at least oftentimes when you sin, you intend to sin, you do sin, you engage your will, and you sin. But this willful sin, taken in the context of the book of Hebrews, has to do with abandoning the entire principle upon which our salvation comes to us, where we abandon and we give up on the way of grace through faith. And of course, there is great pressure to do that very thing, because after all, the whole world and Satan and all of his minions are against these principles that upon which we live our lives. Everything in the world and everything that Satan does is against the principle of grace through faith. So if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now why does it say it that way? Same as what we saw in, in Hebrews chapter 6. Here again, the willful sin is the abandoning 
of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his shed blood. And so we stick ourselves again back under law and looking now what? Forward to what? There doesn't remain a sacrifice for sins. Before the Lord Jesus Christ died for sins, those who were under the law, there did remain a sacrifice for sins. They looked forward to a sacrifice for sins. We look forward to a triumphant coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we look backward to his sacrifice for sins. If we place ourselves in dispensation of law, then we must be looking forward to the sacrifice for sins of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are a vast number of Christians today that are getting all excited about doing Passover seders and keeping Jewish feasts and so forth and so on, which were merely figures looking forward to the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That work, my friends, is finished. And when you place yourself back in there looking forward, as if looking forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, you are sinning willfully. And after you've received the knowledge of the truth, and there is no more sacrifice for sins that that looks forward to. Now that's, I think, as plain as it can be. But, but what takes its place? Well, in the bad conscience, what takes place in the bad conscience of the believer when he no longer is walking by grace through faith is this, verse 27, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation, which doesn't devour that believer, by the way, but which shall devour the adversaries. And, of course, that's what we see today. As so many are abandoning the way of grace through faith, what are they telling us? Here's what we have to look forward to. We have to look forward to the fiery indignation and judgment which is going to be visited upon and devouring the adversaries of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, I am not looking for the great tribulation and the wrath of God or the wrath of Satan or the great wrath of man. I'm looking for my Savior who comes from heaven, and I therefore I have a good conscience before God and men to tell you what the Scriptures say. say and uh, uh, they don't say for you to abandon the way of grace through faith and to take on to, to yourself some legal principle and start uh, uh, doing uh, the little pieces of the Mosaic economy as you want to. Here, verse 26, He that despised Moses' law without mercy under two or three witnesses, how much sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden uh, the underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despot unto the spirit of what? The spirit of grace. And so here's what we see. Uh, that is doing despot to the spirit of grace. Notice here, uh, the one who is uh, uh, sinning willfully or who has abandoned the way of grace through faith is not one uh, talked about that he has abandoned the covenant uh, wherewith he was sanctified, but the blood of the covenant. And here at BibleStudy.net, you'll always hear us talk about that we've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the blood of the new covenant for Israel, but we are not in covenant relationship to God and that new covenant is not for me and it's not for you, it is for Israel the blood of that covenant the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that is for me, that is for you that is the one that sanctifies the church which is his body, that same blood of that covenant, so the blood of the covenant is the same, but we are not in covenant relationship uh, to God, that covenant is for Israel, now here it uh, it goes on and says, well, if 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 the one who uh, ignored uh, Moses' law died without mercy, how much sore punishment suppose you 
who crucified themselves the Son of God afresh, or trod underfoot the Son of God, and count the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified as an unholy thing, and has done despot unto the Spirit of grace. When you take up the Mosaic economy, having understood that I'm blood-bought, saved by the blood of the crucified one, when you realize the great condition and position that you are in Christ, and you go back to these weak and beggarly things, you are trotting underfoot the Son of God and counting his blood as worthless and put yourself in a position as yet anticipating it when in fact it has been shed for you. Now, this severe warning of Hebrews 10, uh, the the writer who we believe is the Apostle Paul, uh, says this toward the end of that uh, uh, chapter, Hebrews 10, the last two verses, uh, verse 38 and 39, Now the just shall live by faith, that's his conclusion, but if any man draws back, that is, if, if, if he draws back away from the way of grace through faith and back in the Mosaic economy, if anyone draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now, that doesn't mean that we're rejected. Well, the Lord has told us in Hebrews 4, he will never leave us, no, not ever forsake us. In, in 1 Timothy, we learn that if we deny him, he'll deny us. But if we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. And now we come to verse 13. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition. That has to do with destruction. We're not of those who draw back unto destruction, but instead, see there are those who draw back to the destruction of the Christian life. And here's how we'll know it. Verse 39, here's how we know that's what it means. Instead of being those who draw back unto perdition or destruction of their lives, we are of them, the end of verse 39, that believe to the saving of the soul, or we are those who believe unto the saving of the life. So when we come back now to Hebrews chapter 2, and he talks to them about working out their own salvation in fear and trembling, or into Philippians chapter 2, he's saying this, you need to be diligent to continue in the way of grace through faith, and therefore work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And pay attention, of course, therefore, to the word of God. And then he says, holding forth, verse 16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And we're going to say a little bit more about that as we go on here. But look at Hebrews 16, he says, or uh, excuse me, Philippians 2, 16. He says exactly what he means. He says, instead of, he says, what what we want to do, to save our lives and to have a successful Christian life, or in the words of Hebrews, to the saving of our souls, our lives, is to hold forth the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will not have wasted or run in vain. That's what it means by run in vain. I will not have wasted my Christian life, nor will I have labored or uh, put forth energy in vain here, but I'll hold forth the uh, the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Listen, friends, we're all going to be together at the judgment seat of Christ in the day of Christ. In the day of Christ, the question isn't whether we'll be there or not. The question is, in what condition will we be there? I want to be there rejoicing. I want to be there bold. I don't want to be there ashamed, and I don't think you want to be that way either. This is BibleStudy.net. You're listening to John Malone. I'll be back after this brief break. Now the apostle reflecting back to his own exemplary life to them, 
uh, as he points out in verse 16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The apostle says uh, something that we overlook, by the way, I think in the scriptures very often, but he's pointing out this. He says, listen, I have a bit of a selfish motive here with you Philippians. I didn't want to waste my time working with you. I ran to Philippi. I've been there a few times, and I trust to come to you again, and he will. But he says, I didn't want to run in vain or labor in vain with you, so you need to be these who strive to be blameless and harmless, who work out your own salvation, and who hold forth the word of life, so that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain in your midst. Now verse 17, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith... I joy and rejoice with you all. Now, what's he saying here? Well, he's now speaking to the obvious reality that he's in prison in Rome, and it's a matter of time, and his life is in the hands of God alone. It's a matter of time where he will be offered up as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, as his life will be taken for the sake of the faith. He certainly knows this is coming. Now, it's not coming in the context of his first imprisonment. There's yet, he has yet a couple years. There's more of the scriptures that have to be written after Philippians. Uh, he has to write the uh, epistles to Timothy, for example, and uh, very possibly he has to write the, uh, the epistle to Philemon also uh, after this one. Uh, but he's toward the end of his life, certainly, and now he says, if, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. So what's he saying? Well, this is another place he talks about being poured out like a drink offering. That is, their their faith, uh, the sacrifice and service of their faith is on the altar, and he may be poured out upon it, his life emptied out upon that, and all goes up in one sacrifice unto God. He says, if, if that happens, I joy and rejoice with you all, for the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. And he says, now this is actual Christian fellowship. He said, our actual, he says, our actual Christian fellowship, our deep Christian fellowship, is in the sufferings of Christ, and by the way, in the way of the cross. Now I know we try to have fellowship in every other way. We try to have fellowship in our feasting together. We try to have uh, fellowship in our en entertainments together, uh, maybe sporting events or picnics or whatever. And listen, I have no problem with sporting events. Certainly the Apostle Paul attended sporting events, had deep knowledge of them. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul, if he was around today, uh, would be a college football fan or something like that. And I think if he was, by the way, he'd be a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. That's just me. What, uh, what do I know except about uh, good college football teams? But in any case, here he says uh, that... His fellowship is in the sacrifice of their faith that he would be poured out. He's talking about his death here. He's talking about his death. He's talking about the way of the cross. Now, he's going to talk more particularly and more specifically about the way of the cross. But you know what? In the age in which we live, the way of the cross is scarcely talked about at all. And yet, it is the way that the Lord Jesus went. It is the way that the Apostle Paul went. It's the way that all the apostles went. It's the way of the cross. It, has, it is the way that the mind of the Lord automatically takes us. So if, when, if and when we're not going that way, of course, we're not minded like the Lord Jesus Christ was minded. Now, he says, if I be offered up upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, it's in everyone's mind. He's speaking the obvious. It's very possible that his life will be taken. Now, he says, for the same cause. Well, what cause is that? The cause of his martyrdom? No. 
for the cause of being rejoicing at the judgment seat of Christ, being found blameless, having worked out our Christian lives uh, with fear and trembling, our own salvation. That's the cause. Uh, also, what he says, for the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Now, they're not. he's not some kind of morbid fellow saying, I rejoice in death, and you can rejoice in my death, because isn't death great? But he's actually saying, I have joy and you have joy, because our faith looks past the grave and looks to that day when we come to face-to-face with our Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be like him and that we could be pleasing to him and have great and exceeding joy where we enter into the joy uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ has where he even says to us enter into the joy of thy master remember the Lord Jesus Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despised the shame he did despise the shame he didn't think that the shame, he didn't let the shame of it all get in the way of the cross and is now set down the right hand of God the Father on high. The way down is the way up. Now, the apostle having cleared that in the 18th verse uh, leads to some discussion here about considerations that ought rightly make us sad. And they do. Verse 19, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now he says, listen, I'm going to send Timothy to you so that I could know more particularly and more specifically about your state. Generally, he's fine with them, but he's going to send Timothy to them uh, that he may be of good comfort, that is, that he can reap even more comfort in the Lord when he knows of their more specifically of their condition. And of course, one of the things that God does in the life of a shepherd like the Apostle Paul is, and God has other shepherds, and God makes men shepherds, is he binds them up with the consideration of the state of the flock. And uh, maybe you shepherd in, maybe some of you that are listening to me shepherd in a local church. Uh, Maybe you do it formally, maybe you do it informally. Uh, Maybe you just want to do it. Uh, Let me say this, the shepherd is to know the state of his flock. A shepherd is to know the state of the flock, and he's to give diligence to know the state of the flock. And so the apostle here wants to know their state. Of course, his reward is tied up with their estate, with their condition, and he's worried that his whole life will be a waste. You know, let me tell you something. I'm in my uh, last quarter. I'm in the. I'm at the edge of at the last part of my life, not the beginning of my life. And I've had the wonderful opportunity in my life to have very many great experiences. I've had a decade or so of work in uh, in East Africa, uh, overseas. I've uh, been I had opportunity to travel elsewhere around the world. I've had the opportunity to have a business that had some measure of success uh, in my uh, local area. I've had a, w- a very wide range of experiences, which I, I believe the Lord blessed me with the experiences, both good and bad, uh, that I might have uh, a little bit of uh, knowledge and experience here at the edge of my life, and that my gray, gray hair uh, might mean something. Of course, he's also blessed me with uh, near, uh, oh, uh, 21 grandchildren, at least we hope to have 21 grandchildren early next year. And, uh, yeah, okay, maybe I'm boasting a little bit, but I'm boasting in the Lord as these things come uh, by grace through faith. Uh, all these experiences come by grace through faith. And I assure you that some of these experiences, uh, those of you that may think I'm boasting, you might not enjoy uh, much of the experiences that I'm talking about. But let me say this. Uh, in, in all those experiences, uh, 
many times the experience has been what a waste and what futility life affords us. I can especially assure you that about business experience. Yeah, when if, if all you're getting out of your business experience is the hope of worldly success, let me assure you that that is a very bankrupt hope, and the Lord has seen to it in many ways that I understand that in a deep and personal way. On the other hand, it would be a tragedy if my work in the Lord turned into nothing like much of my work in the world has turned into. And that's what the Apostle Paul here is worried about. He's worried about his work in the Lord turning into trash at the judgment seat of Christ and being worthless. So he says, I, I want to know your state. I want to I see if I've wasted my Christian life. And, of course, I'm looking for some good news. I'm looking for something that remains, something that is still of the truth of grace through faith. Of course, this is the fellow that's had the awful experience of the Galatian churches. He's had the awful experience of the Corinthian churches. He's had even a worse experience with his fellowship in Jerusalem. So here's a guy who's probably wondering, look, is anything of what I do going to remain? Or, or is this going to be uh, just a pathetic, wasted Christian life I've had? You say, well, how do you know that he's saying that? Well, he says, I have to send Timothy. I don't have anybody else to send. Verse 20, look at the condition here in the early going of, of the Christian churches. Look what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He says, I have no man like-minded who will naturally, or from the heart, care for your estate. I don't have anybody who's like-minded. Now, what he means, I think, I believe what this means, because Timothy certainly is like-minded, but Timothy is very young. He can't actually be fully like-minded to the apostle because the apostle's an old man with a lot of experience, and Timothy's a young man with not much experience. So he's going to send Timothy to the Philippians. Well, why is he sending a young man? Today, churches all want young men. The Apostle Paul sent a young man because he had to, not because he wanted to. He would have rather sent somebody just like himself, somebody like-minded, like Barnabas or like uh, uh, Apollos. But these fellows departed from him, and they weren't available to send. Now, he has Luke with him, but Luke has a particular call of God. Uh, to minister to the Apostle Paul, and of course we find out to chronicle uh, and write a couple of vast books in the Scripture, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But here now, uh, he says, I don't have anybody like-minded. Friends, do you know that that's pathetic? Uh, literally pathetic. That there was no one like-minded by the time of the Apostle Paul's first imprisonment, there was nobody like-minded with him. I just think that's a sad commentary. And by the way, it's a sad commentary today that there are not men like-minded as servants of the Lord, especially, as I've said many times, older men. Many older men would like to be, but they live such lives as to disqualify, disqualify themselves from being that man. Other older men are more abandoning the faith and loving the world than they are sticking to uh, the life of the way of the cross. And that's a sad condition, and no one is the, is the winner in that circumstance. So here is the pathetic state of the Apostle Paul. I have no one like-minded who will naturally, in this word of a ready mind, who will naturally uh, care for your state. No one who will look after others rather than his own self. And if that speaks to you, 
let it speak to you and uh, uh, let the grace of God turn you and the, let the grace of God turn your mind to the mind of Christ who came to serve and to suffer and not to seek his own. Because verse 21 says what these fellows are like that the, that, that the apostle can't send. He says, all seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Now, this condition obtains all over Christian world today. All over the Christian world. And I can know it generally, and I have known it specifically. But at such times as you would hope that you'd have somebody like-minded who would seek after the uh, uh, state and the care of the churches and God's people, uh, instead of finding that, you just find one man after the next who seeks after his own things and not after the things of Jesus Christ. And uh, especially today, well, I say especially today, I say especially today because I live today. But especially always, this is the case, uh, that men seek their own things and not the things which are Christ. Now, so he commends to them, Timothy, he has to send a young man, and he sends him along with some uh, words. He says, you know the proof of him, that as as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. He said, you know this guy's proven. He was with me, he was with me with you. And you know that he served me like a son with a father. And so, uh, in the gospel, therefore I hope to send him presently. And as soon as I shall see how it will go with me. So the apostle had some matter he wanted to see, I suppose, if he was going to be released. And of course he does get released from his first imprisonment. After all, there's no valid charge. But uh, And then it appears that uh, the apostle's plan, at least as detailed here, in the 23rd verse is to find out some matter about how it's going to go with him and then let Timothy loose and send him to Philippi. And now verse 24, but he says, But I trust in the Lord that I shall myself uh, also come shortly. And so he also gives them his intention to come and visit again, and we think that that did indeed happen. Verse 25, Yet I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger or your apostle and and he that ministered to my wants. And this is a very touching statement about Epaphroditus. Uh, This shows the deep fellowship that the Philippians have with the apostle Paul and conversely he with them as they sent to him their messenger or their apostle. Now here's an apostle of the Philippian church. Let's not get too excited about what that actually means. It is the word for messenger. He was sent for a specific purpose by the church to the Apostle Paul to minister to the Apostle's needs, to give him some companionship, and no doubt to bring him some cash and maybe some other goods to help him along in his imprisonment. And here are affectionate words that he says about Epaphroditus. And here's about the two most affectionate words that I think a Christian man can say for another Christian man, where he says, I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, and here it is, my brother, my brother. And uh, by the way, my brother, uh, this is here the Apostle Paul's brother. And he says, and companion in labor. Uh, This has to do, or fellow laborer. Again, here, there are two fellow terms here. He says, my fellow laborer and fellow soldier. And brother, this is what we are. We're brothers together. We're laborers together. And we ought to be soldiers together. And there's no deeper and there's no greater fellowship. And there's no greater heart or greater love on earth than brothers who are laborers together and soldiers together in the spiritual war 
that is Jesus Christ. And here he was the apostle or your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. Now we'll talk a little bit more about Epaphroditus and the Philippians next time. You've been listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. May God bless your meditation in his word, especially the epistle to the Philippians.